Talking Books with Susan Cahill. This is News Talk. I, I don't find graves all that attractive in some ways. I mean, it's a very good review um, in, in today's Sunday Times by John Walsh, and he says that he, he described graves as being portrayed by me as not particularly lovable, but, but very interesting, you know, very intellectually interesting. And, and I think probably one just has to contain oneself in one's judgment. You have to try very hard, and it is hard sometimes, to, to see it from his point of view. I mean, he'd been in the war at 19. He'd come out. He'd more or less supported Nancy through her four pregnancies. Then, on the other hand, as an artist, he had his own needs. And, and I think artists often are very, very egotistical, very self-absorbed. So I tried very hard, and I always try very hard, not to judge that, because I don't know all of it, do I? I only know that I wouldn't. I have five children. I know that I wouldn't find that possible. But then maybe fathers have a different relationship to children. The children, there were four children, the children themselves reacted in different ways. The two children who were more or less growing up by the time he left, never forgave him. The two children who were more or less babies when he left became friends with him later on. The story of great war poetry is incomplete without the war poems of Robert Graves. High praise indeed from one of Northern Ireland's foremost contemporary poets, Michael Longley, from his book Robert Graves' Selected Poems, published in 2013. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Is there a link between creativity and mental health? And was Robert Graves one of the greatest poetic voices of the 20th century? Well, on tonight's show, we're going to unpack those questions with biographer, writer and teacher Jean Moorcroft-Wilson, whose latest offering, Robert Graves, from great war poet to goodbye to all that, has just been published by Bloomsbury, where Jean writes, Graves was initially proud to be seen as a war poet, but later he suppressed virtually all the verse written during and just after the war, and only 17 of his many poems of that period survived. Jean goes on to state that Robert Graves wanted to convey the reality of war, and for him the reality lay more in dreams, myths and nightmares than in realistic details of carnage, and that he experimented with both psychological and philosophical approaches. So who and what was Robert Graves? My name is Jean Moorcroft Wilson, and I'm a biographer who specialises in First World War poets. Um, and I think, I hope in the course of the, of, the, of the talk, it will emerge why I've chosen that area. The, the poetry itself has to be good, of course. I've written biographies of Siegfried Sassoon, a two-volume biography, which was very well received. Um, Isaac Rosenberg, in fact, I've written two books on Rosenberg. And then I've written recently on Edward Thomas, a very strange man who, who was a great friend of the American poet Robert Frost. 
And my book, my most recent book, is, is on Robert Graves. Partly, I felt, because Graves has not really been fully recognized as, as a war poet, but we'll, we'll probably come to that. Um, and I, I do hope that my knowledge of Sassoon will have made it a little bit better than it might otherwise have been, because they were great friends. What an absorbing and interesting uh, read, Jean. Really well done on the biography. I have to say it, it was uh, it was so fascinating to read on so many different levels. Uh, you cover so much uh, ground, uh, both literary ground, psychological ground. And I think there's so much in this biography for all sorts of readers. I might throw you a big wide open question to kick things off and be sure we can take it from there. What makes a poet? And within that, is talent always complex? Well, it's a fascinating subject. I mean, having dealt with, well, at least five poets by now, in some depth, um, I'm always interested in the question, are they born? Do they, are they born with the instinct of poetry? Or are they encouraged? Or is it a combination of both? I think probably um, the, the less exciting answer is that it is a combination of both. But when you look at someone like Siegfried Sassoon or Robert Graves, you'll find that their parents were hugely encouraging. Uh, in Graves's case, his mother would write down anything he said that she thought sounded poetic and put it in a, a songbook that she called the Red Branch Songbook because that was the name of their house in deference to the Irish legend. And she would, she would make him feel that he could write poetry. And Sassoon's case the same. His mother decided he was going to be a poet at the age of three. And so she, she gave him a book on his third birthday of Shakespeare's, um, Shakespeare's plays and Coleridge's lectures on them. Quite an extraordinary thing to do to a three-year-old. So it is, to some extent, encouragement from the people who bring you up, your parents, your relatives. But also, I think it's it's some sort of innate interest that, that is there from the beginning. In Graves' case, he decided by the age of, well, quite young, really, but by the age of 15, definitely, he decided that poetry was what he wanted to devote himself to. Jean, that's very interesting when you mention about um, Seafruit Sassoon's mum and that, you know, by the age of three, she was encouraging him to write poetry and she thought he was had the makings of being a quality poet. But getting back to Robert Gray's, would it be fair to say that uh, Robert was the mum's uh, favourite child? That, you know, she had a major soft spot for him and that everyone else took second place? Well, certainly when he was born, because... She was very Victorian in the sense that she thought male children mattered and female children didn't. And since she'd had two daughters, she apparently seemed to regard them as practicing ground for the real child who was the son who came third. And that was Robert, of course. And he was right in the middle of the family. So he had two younger brothers to boss around and he had two older sisters to adore him, plus his mother. So, yes, he was very much a cherished child. How would you describe um, Robert Graves' relationship with his father? Well, it changes, you see. It changes so much. And when he comes to writing his autobiography in 1929, which, as you know, is where my book finishes, when it comes to his autobiography, he's very critical of his father. 
He says his father didn't help him in any way with his poetry. And yet his father was a well-known songwriter in Ireland. I mean, Father O'Flynn and several of his very popular songs were set to music and enormously popular. He was interested in Irish folklore and he, he was always writing poetry. And Graves, I think that was a very important influence as well as the mother because he grew up, Graves, seeing his father sitting at his desk writing poetry. I think his father's, the relationship between the two was very complicated, as it is often with sons and fathers, you know, isn't it? I mean, he, 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 he was quite close to him when he was young, but as he grew older, he began to be very critical of him. In your introductions, you write that Robert Graves had one of the greatest imaginations of the 20th century. But why do you think it is that of all the war poets, he is possibly one of the least uh, well-known as compared to, let's say, Siegfried Sassoon or Rupert Brooke or Wilfred Owen? Like, how do you explain that? Uh, well, there are several reasons why this should be so. I mean, he, you know, he had, for example, um, his own attitude towards the war poetry which was initially very proud, uh, later became rather ashamed of them. And he suppressed a great many, because he wrote a great many war poems, he suppressed nearly all of them. And in his poems 1914 to 1927, which of course was published in 1927, only 17 of many, many poems survived in that collection, war poems. I mean, another reason might be their length. They're very long, some of them. There's a wonderful poem about a young man who died called David Thomas, with whom I think he was partly in love. And um, he memorialized him in a, a poem called Goliath and David. It's quite a long poem, very, very good poem, in which David doesn't defeat the giant Goliath represents the German soldiers in the poem. David is killed by Goliath. But it's a long poem, and so, you know, it hadn't really very much chance of getting into the anthologies. The anthologists like the short, snappy poems. And then the poems themselves are very indirect in their approach. He loves telling stories from the Bible, which are really comments on the war, like Goliath and David. Or he loves to talk about Roman history. There's a poem called The Legion, in which he's talking about the Roman Legion and how poor some of the later conscripts were, just like the English soldiers, of course. And the comment isn't direct, and so it takes a bit more subtlety to understand them. Another thing he does is that he takes um, situations from a child's point of view, so that a poem like The First funeral, for example, about seeing a dead dog and how much it smelt. When you read it carefully, you realize he's talking about the dead Germans and the dead bodies on the, on the battlefield. And perhaps very much more to the point is that unlike Siegfried Sassoon and Wilfred Owen, Robert Graves is not making a protest. And you know how protest poetry in the First World War became popular. I mean, you know, the Poems like The General by Siegfried Sassoon, um, in which the general did for them both by his plan of attack at the end of it. All of that makes them 
much more accessible to the general public. Whereas, you know, most people don't have a very good grasp of Roman history or perhaps don't know their biblical history well enough. So he's a, he's a very subtle and learned poet, and that may mean that he's not as popular as they are. I'm just wondering, Jean, to what extent um, was um, World War I the defining experience of his life? Because, you know, a lot of men who came back from war would have said that at the time. Now, clearly, lots got married, had children, and they were big moments in their lives. But the war fundamentally um, defined who and what they were. Yes, and I would, I would say, really, in perhaps a less obvious way, but, but just as cogently, I would say that it defined Graves. I would say that it encouraged in him a certain sense of being above ordinary life. I mean, don't forget, when he was in the war, he was left for dead, and he lay for 24 hours in the dressing station, left for dead. And so when he recovered and somebody realized he was breathing and they took him to the hospital and he got better... I think he's had a certain sense of being in, invulnerable, of not, there was nothing that anybody could really do to him anymore. It made him more reckless, and he was pretty reckless anyway, but it made him feel that whatever he did was, was somehow all right after that. He was certainly very much affected by the war all the way through the 20s. Even as an old man, apparently, especially when he became demented towards the end, Alzheimer's, um, that kind of thing. He felt that um, the Germans were attacking him. He felt guilty that he had shot Germans. So yes, it did define him to, to some extent. He probably felt he'd nothing to lose after that, really, did he? Yes, that's exactly what I was trying to say, really, that if that had happened and that was the worst that could happen, then... You know, why be so worried about life? I think that quite a lot of men became a little bit more reckless after that sort of experience. How superstitious was he? Because you write something very interesting in the biography. You write, the war reinforced his belief in powers above, beyond or outside the rational. So what do you mean by that exactly? Well, I mean that he, he, didn't, he didn't just believe that if you act in a certain way certain things would follow he believed that there was a power beyond all of those ordinary everyday things like if you if you pay your rent you won't get chucked out of your flat you know i mean he he felt that there was some other world that was going on the world that that meant that you know when he was lying apparently dead on the battlefield somebody noticed he was breathing and he lived so he he believed that and he, he had grown up in a, a very um, superstitious household. You know, they, they had all those beliefs, like looking at the moon through glass was unlucky, that kind of thing. And you bowed to it nine times. And also with his mother, who was German, the Bavarian world that she grew up in was very superstitious. It was full of ghosts and legends and the Valkyrie and all of that stuff. You have some very interesting um, passages on when uh, Graves, Sassoon and Owen met during World War I. And clearly Graves was very impressed by Sassoon. He wasn't as um, impressed by Owen and he kind of showed a degree of, I suppose, intellectual snobbery, if you will. But I'm just wondering, why do you think so many books have been written about these guys and their relationships? Well, it's a 
it's a fascinating area and you know it's one in which i have i have come to realize that although we're celebrating 100 years after that war and the the anniversary of it people always continue to be fascinated it was very personal people were fighting hand to hand young men 19 year olds 18 year olds even younger sometimes were going out to fight in the trenches in which you you might get blown to pieces it was a very dramatic and personal thing to happen i mean graves was only 19 and 1 month when he when he was um when he decided to enlist and and you know he traveled they traveled in a way they would not have traveled if they had stayed in england his his plan was to go to oxford to Oxford University. He didn't particularly want to go to Oxford because he said it would just be like being at public school again. You know, he'd be doing the same things, being rather silly, being a young man. Instead of which, he was in charge of men. He was in charge of guns. He was in, in charge of life, if you like. I mean, it's a very dramatic thing, isn't it, that? And of course, the history of that period, the battlefields, the Battle of Luce, which was very dramatic, the Battle of the Somme, both of which, of course, he was present at. So it is, it's a period that continues to fascinate us. And out of that, and this I think is why I'm interested, the combination of the history of that period with the use of the participants on the whole and the poetry, and some of that poetry is quite outstanding. Because, of course, it's dealing with life and death, and it's also written by young men who would otherwise been at, have been at university or at home writing their own poetry. You argue that Graves associated the Great War with homosexuality, producing a homosexual melodrama. And I thought that was really interesting. But it seems from reading through your biography that in a lot of different ways that Graves was very much, you know, keen to, um, you know, prove that he was um, heterosexual, that he rushed into his marriage. And in a lot of different ways, he was kind of proving himself to his public that he wasn't homosexual. Do you think that's fair to say? Um well, yes, I, you know, he, he describes in some detail in his book, Goodbye to All That, he describes in some detail his um, relationship with a younger boy, a boy who was nearly four years younger than he was, which, of course, in nowadays, we'd probably almost regard him as a pederast if, <laughs> if anything had happened, which I don't think it did. I don't think physically it was a relationship. He says it was a pseudo-homosexuality. He says that at boys' schools, the absence of women meant that, you know, all those sexual feelings were directed to the pretty younger boys, especially if they had a voice like an angel, which his particular crush did. And so he is attracted at that stage. But then I think when the young boy, and it's a wonderful story, when the young, well, a terrible story, really, when the young boy concerned, who went on to become um, Viscount Darwin, um, one, of the, one of the Viscounts in England, when he went on to become um, famous, this was all buried, of course, but when he was a young boy at, at um, Charterhouse, he had been caught soliciting a Canadian corporal for sex on, on Godalming Railway Station. 
And when Graves heard of this, I think the reaction was huge. I think he was terrified that he was going to be associated with such things. He was puritanical. He'd been brought up as a, in a very puritanical way by a loving but very puritanical mother. And I think he rushed to find himself a girlfriend as a kind of violent reaction to that. I mean, he first of all fell in love with a woman at, at the hospital where he was recovering from pneumonia or bronchitis. Um, um, a woman, not much was known about her, but I found out quite a lot more about her. Her name was Marjorie. And uh, everybody said, oh, he's making it up. But no, he fell in love with Marjorie. But when she turned out to have a boyfriend who was in the army, he decided that he couldn't do that. He couldn't, because he'd seen how men suffered in, in France from their girlfriends going off with somebody else. So he got rid of Marjorie and went in pursuit of a young, a young girl, 18-year-old girl called Nancy Nicholson. So he was... He was about 22, I think, when they met. She was 18. And he said to a friend after his relationship, brief relationship with the first woman, Marjorie, he said that he could now safely and happily return unto friends of my own sex and be happy because he was really just proving, I think. He was trying to prove that he wasn't homosexual. Um, the marriage with Nancy didn't really, wasn't a success. I would say it was okay. I would say she was too young. I would say that she was very much of a feminist and that he didn't quite understand how she felt about men. Um, and I think that, you know, it, it, but it did seem to me that he rushed into marriage with her. They married when she was 18 and he was 23 he rushed into marriage with her to prove that he wasn't a homosexual. I don't think there's any indication after that that he was um, that he was bisexual. Sassoon thought he was in love with him, but but Graves denied it. Nancy described him as a, a, a very demanding and rather clumsy lover. And, you know, when I read that in your biography, I was so disappointed because, you know, when we look at these war poets and you see them as quite heroic, you know, they're on the um, battlefields, risking their lives, uh, going through all sorts of extreme environments. And then to get kind of these kind of, I suppose, very kind of uh, pedestrian details on their sex lives, it becomes incredibly disappointing because in a lot of ways you kind of have them up on this pedestal and part of that <laughs> is their sexual prowess, if you will. Yes, and um, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but I, I like to, to get, you know, I, I would like to tell it as it is. Um, I, it doesn't surprise me because Graves and Nancy were both virgins when they married. I, I suppose Graves was rather worried about how he would, quote, perform. Um, but he was very self-absorbed, Graves. And I think this applies to quite a number of, of artists, poets, writers, who have done, you know, remarkable things. I think it probably applied to, um, well, think of anybody. Uh, look, at, look at Shakespeare. I'm sure if we knew a lot more about his life, we wouldn't think he'd behave very well to his wife. Um, and so soon finally married to prove he was heterosexual and then behaved abominably to his wife in some ways. So, there, there, you know, I, I think one has to recognize that they are only human beings. 
And he was clumsy, Graves. He was tactless. I mean, he had quite a number of faults, but then he was also very generous, you see. He was generous with his friends. I mean, not just with money, but with time and with help. And and he was he was very ready to do things. He was ready to respond to things. So I don't think one can... And also with Nancy, of course, she was ill quite a lot of the time with thyroid problems. And he looked after four children, cooked all the meals at a time when men didn't cook meals, washed their clothes, washed them, no doubt, and, and was really a very good father. But, Jean, the decision to marry her was very much a kind of a cold, rational decision. It doesn't seem to have been based because that he was actually falling in love or was in love. It was just a kind of a, it was almost like a business decision, really. Well, it, it, it seemed to me, I mean, we can't know this, of course. I, I felt that there was, there was a number of clues that he was deciding to get married rather than madly in love. Um, but but I think what really made me convinced that he wasn't deeply in love with her was the poetry. There is no real love poetry there. Whereas when he met Laura Riding later on, the poetry becomes very passionate and, and very detailed um, about her wonderful body and her mind. And, you know, it, it's, it's quite different, the poetry. And when later on still he, he took some younger women as his muse, you know, the white goddess, his poetry is inspired by them. So I think Nancy's status as, as a, a partner is defined by the lack, of, the lack of any real love poetry to her. I think he's fond of her. I don't think, I don't think he loved her in that way. But fondness is, um, would choke you if you were a wife to... Um to kind of be kind of put into that category, wouldn't it? No, no, no. You see, it. Um, I, I don't think it will do, <laughs> really. Talking books with Susan Cahill. This is News Talk. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, I'm talking with British writer, biographer and teacher Jean Moorcroft Wilson, whose latest book, Robert Graves, From Great War Poet to Goodbye to All That, 1895 to 1929, has just been published by Bloomsbury. I asked Jean about English neurologist and psychiatrist W.H.R. Rivers, who became internationally renowned for treating World War I soldiers for shell shock and trauma, and about his relationship with Robert Graves and whether Graves got what he was looking for. Difficult question. I don't... You see, I, I decided, and he says, that he was not treated by Rivers. Sassoon was treated by Rivers and, and found Rivers quite wonderful, Siegfried Sassoon, and that was when Graves met Rivers. But Graves himself, although he had neurasthenia, and he sometimes called it shell shock, although that's slightly more severe, I think, shell shock, but although he suffered from neurasthenia all the way through the 20s, he wasn't, he, he wasn't allowing himself to be treated because he thought... And, and I think Rivers agreed with him, that the poetry he was writing was coming from the conflict that he had experienced in the war. So that if he was cured of his neurasthenia or his shell shock, the poetry might dry up. And so although he suffered very badly, I mean, every, every two weeks, he said, he would have these terrible attacks. 
he couldn't bear to hear a noise. He couldn't bear to go on a train. He, he couldn't bear certain smells because they reminded him of gas in the trenches. So although he suffered all that, he would rather suffer that and go on writing poetry than be, quote, cured and possibly lose the ability to write poetry because he thought poetry came from the same source, that it came from conflict. God, that's so interesting when you think that through, that, you know, um, when you look at um, genius and then you look at the kind of broader area of suffering and the relationship between suffering and genius. So I suppose he thought he'd lose his edge. Was that it? Yes, yes, definitely. And I think Rivers agreed with him to some extent. And, um, you know, I was very lucky. I was able to study some of the letters that are not published from Rivers to, to Graves. Um, at that period, and it's quite clear that that Rivers didn't think he should be. And he didn't think he really needed to be. I think he didn't feel it was severe enough to be to be a danger to his life. And he, he also, I think, felt that if he just persevered and went on and gritted his teeth, time, he said, time would make a big difference and time would help him to live with it, which he did. He saw himself as somewhat of an outsider and I was just wondering, given all the different poets that you've written about through the years, do you think that is one of their essential qualities, that they are outsiders, that they live within the periphery and that they're, they're always looking over, so to speak? Well, I, we say it's not a quality that they need to begin with, but I think the very act of writing poetry is a very solitary, solitary one, and that it creates a world in which they have to retreat, into which they have to retreat, so that in doing so they become, to some extent, an outsider.